today we are honored to be talking with Alyssa Chang, who is a brain-based coach. And Alyssa, I'm just wondering if you could introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you live? What are you about? <laughs> yes. Thank you, Tracy. So I work as a brain-based health and movement specialist. Um, I just moved back to Honolulu, Hawaii. I was born and raised here, but spent more than half of my life in California. And, you know, part of my quote unquote story is I was a collegiate volleyball player. I was pushing my body physically to achieve performance goals. And then on top of that, I decided to push my body in a different format to achieve aesthetic goals and entered figure competitions through kind of this mentality of pushing, pushing and going, I started to feel less and less well my body started to respond and rebel against everything that I thought was going to help her feel better. And I started to feel really sick. So that kind of segued me into this nervous system work of really working with the brain to heal the body. I feel like when I started working with you and so many people are in this space of do more, you know, no pain, no gain, we'll sleep when you're dead, really using our intellect to try and overcome our physical body and I was really fascinated by the fact that the nervous system is so attuned to the environment that really nuanced aspects of our lives can be influencing it in ways that we might not expect. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I always find it's easier to kind of start conceptually with like, the nervous system's like main, main purpose, and that's to keep you safe and alive. So throughout this podcast, you might hear me talking a lot about safety, about survival, and so exactly what you were sharing, Tracy, there's, you know, the nervous system is always scanning your environment. And when the nervous system is picking up stress or threats, it's going to feel less and less safe. And when the nervous system feels less safe, or it has to be on guard or on alert, we start to have this physiological response in our body. So we increase cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which might influence adrenaline, which builds our heart rate, right? It allows us to like flee from danger. So people often reference being able to flee from a running tiger, except in today's culture, right? There's no tigers around. <laughs> um, so what we're constantly on alert of is, you know, navigating a global pandemic, navigating a very interesting world we live in. Um, we're also, you know, just on high alert because we're in front of screens all day where the body and the nervous system are meant to be outside and to be moving and to be, you know, having periods and days, if not weeks, just kind of relaxing and resting. So we're all kind of operating in this more kind of cortisol addiction or highly elevated nervous system place, which at some point the nervous system will get tired. And that's what we're noticing, I think, with COVID is that there's this kind of COVID fatigue that's occurring collectively where, you know, tasks are feeling a little bit more mundane. We're getting really tired. There's less novelty in the world or our routines. So we end up feeling a lot more exhausted, less motivated work. Productivity goes down, morale goes down. So it's all of these really interesting contributing environmental factors that can lead to how we feel environment is very, very influential. It can come down to not only what's happening 
with a pandemic, but also what happens inside of your office. Tracy knows this. There's light sensitivity is very common, blue light sensitivity, sound sensitivity. So all of these things, the nervous system is receiving as information and then trying to determine, is this a safe interpretation or is this making me unsafe? And depending on how your nervous system interprets that, it will give you some sort of response, either a safe response or a unsafe response, which could be pain. Alyssa, I've got to hop in here as someone whose nervous system is definitely overrun. (laughs) Just a question getting to the heart of the matter. A lot of these are systemic factors and wellness and health tends to put too much pressure on the individual to solve what is frankly an unfair environment that they're placed in. So think about just how many millions of people do have to stare at a screen most of the day for their job, do have pressures to pay mortgages and put kids to school, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you help people navigate what is a kind of a systemic issue and how much can the individual actually kind of fight back against these system errors that are driving way too much stimulation on our nervous system? I feel that it's so individual. I mean, I think Across the board, I 100% agree that there are elements of privilege that people have access to and elements where they're forced to kind of mold themselves and their lifestyles because they have less privilege. And I think when it comes down to that, it's, you know, what I work closely on with my clients is really understanding themselves, their own nervous system's capacity to hold a lot of different emotions, hold a lot of different stressors and being able to attuned to those responses so that then I can help support them in better supporting their entire lifestyle. Because there's some elements of everyone's life that's non-negotiable, right? We we do have to work to some degree if we need to pay for food, a roof over our head, et cetera. And to just understand that this specific lifestyle may be conflicting with your health. I mean, Tracy and I have talked about this before, that, you know, we're risking this part of your lifestyle, maybe even this part of your happiness, but how can we at least support you the best way that we can? And sometimes that comes down to specific strategies that downregulate the nervous system. And as Tracy mentioned, it's super fast. It could be done in a single breath that allows you to kind of come out of that fight or flight response. Yeah. It's just being very intentional about supporting a lifestyle that maybe you don't have the option of, you know, tweaking and moving away from, but it's just about, okay, this is what, what it looks like right now. So what we need to do is find the modalities and strategies to help support you the best way that we can. That's great. And you know, the premise of this podcast is about life design and adapting life to lead a more fulfilling and arguably more fun and rewarding life. That's maybe by different measures than historical society kind of treats them. Your clients, do most of them end up in a place where they make minor adjustments within their existing lifestyle and feel quite a bit better or more um, radical adjustments, say leaving a really stressful job or, or moving to a less stressful location? Or can you, I know that's a broad question, but just in general, how do your clients tend to respond once they learn from you and learn the feedback loops of what's working for them? as they develop the self-awareness, sometimes that's really confronting. They're like, wow, okay, so I am working this job that's literally the result of all my symptoms. 
Because through this self-awareness, self-consciousness work of understanding what their nervous system is deeming as unsafe, they're literally on a chalkboard noticing like, it's the fact that I'm on Zoom all day. It's the fact that I have this really difficult client relationship. It's the fact that, you know, I'm sitting at home where I used to be able to go into work and have community. So when they start to have kind of those moments where they're pausing and looking at how they're living their life and how much that's conflicting with the life they want to live, I think that self-awareness is key, number one, but can also be a little bit overwhelming. And so, you know, what my work involves doing in that space is like really kind of holding them with a lot of support and guiding them through, like, if you feel so in much in conflict, like what are the options that you have ahead of you? If you have the self-awareness over being on zoom all day and how that makes your body feel, how can we create the strategies to help reduce that pain in your shoulders and your neck or those headaches? So the self-awareness piece, I think is something that allows them to better understand themselves, which then allows them to make faster adjustments to their lifestyle in a way that's effective. And that doesn't necessarily occupy a lot of time. And that's why I love the nervous system work is that it's, it's pretty precise. It's really effective. They don't have to like remove themselves or create hours of pockets in their schedule, which many people don't have to like sit and meditate. So it becomes much more effective because I can have someone do a vision drill and that allows their pain to completely diminish. Whereas maybe they've done foam rolling and stretching and then breathing, and it takes up an hour in a day that they don't have. I do have other students that have done more drastic pivots. I mean, it's not common, not uncommon, I should say, where as they work with me and as they are in this consistent conversation of staying in alignment with what really matters to them, recognizing what their nervous system needs, that they start to question the life and the change or the behaviors that they currently have. So that does come down to, Alyssa, I'm really unhappy at my job. And then I'm like, okay, you know, and I just had, I just had actually a student leave her job. What comes with leaving a job is a lot of anxiety and it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of unknown, everything that the nervous system will react to. The good thing is that we've done a lot of work to support you in this reactivity space, to remind your nervous system that it's okay. We're going to, you know, take care of you as an entire human to not only have the conversations that are necessary, but to also create a map or a plan of how to support you after. And then all the movement therapy, all the nutrition support to allow your nervous system to not be in that really stressed space. Can you give us understanding of what it might look like to check in with yourself and what kind of feedback you get and how you can change that in the moment? Yes. So I would say that there are a couple of different scenarios. They're the people that can ask themselves, how am I feeling? And they're like, wow, I'm feeling a little tired. I went to bed late. Okay. So if I'm tired, maybe today what I'll do is instead of jumping on my computer, I'm going to take myself out for a walk to start my day with like a little bit of, you know, allowing my eyes to reset and relax in nature. Um, I'm going to use my peripheral vision, which allows the eyes to relax, decreases the nervous system tone. Walking is very parasympathetically driven. So it allows us to move into rest and digest faster. And then there's the other conversation where someone will be like, how am I feeling? And they're like, hmm how am I feeling? I, I don't know. And there's a blank space. And I think for the people that, you know, start this work of checking in with themselves and they're met with a complete blank canvas, that's so intimidating, right? That they're like, oh my God, is there something wrong with me? Like, I don't know how I'm doing. And again, going back to the conversation of it being really confronting, it's really scary. A lot of people are like, I don't know how I'm doing. And that scares me. That like terrifies me because 
if I don't know how I'm doing, how will I ever know how to take care of myself? And so for those people that struggle with even putting words to how they feel, um, usually there's a health history where they were either a, um, in their family history, they were either kind of this people pleaser, the fixer, they learned to, they learned that in order for them to have a stable, safe environment, they had to abandon themselves and keep the peace. So with that, they've diminished a ton of these check-ins, a ton of these, how am I feeling a ton of these words and languages that they could put to how they're, how they're experiencing the world. And so our goal then is to cultivate that language, expand on, you know, I feel tired and I'm like, cool. Okay. So if you were to use your own words or create a story around that, what does that look like to you? And they're like, well, and they start just storytelling. And I think that's a beautiful way to start creating connection with the body so that if they're tired, maybe they don't need a walk. Maybe they just need to sleep in. So that's where kind of the nuanced of like these self-check-ins are really particular to someone's health history. We've captured kind of the the breadth of it. And what I'd love to hear, Alyssa, is if you could explain some of the drills, like the checking your arm or doing that, just so people can get a sense of like, what's a thing that I can check that my body can tell me right away besides like thinking about it. So there's always like the objective assessments with you're talking about is, you know, check like something um, like range of motion, which I commonly do with my clients. So if they were to do a forward fold, um, which is just kind of like bending down to the ground, I'm asking them to number one, scan how it feels in their body, which is more subjective, but also to assess like how far or how close to the ground am I reaching? And maybe they're like reaching down and their like hands barely touch their knees and their back super tight, their hamstrings are really tight. And noticeably the range of motion is far from the floor. So then we can gather that information and understand that, wow, okay, <laughs> Tracy's brain is a little bit on high alert. It's creating a lot of muscular tension because muscular tension is typically a sign of threat. So when we are in an environment under bright lights, um, we're on our screen a lot, maybe there's a really loud radio across the street, whatever, that's making our body really tense. Chronic tension leads to tight muscles. So a forward fold might feel really tight. So after we kind of do this assessment, there's a repertoire of brain-based solutions and drills we could insert. And maybe I'm going to have Tracy move her eyes. So your eyes play a huge role in pain and a huge huge role in posture. I think it's upwards of 90%. So if Tracy starts to move her eyes and she follows her finger in a circle and she's noticing, wow, yeah, looking up feels really straining on my eyes. I'm starting to blink a lot. My heart rate increases. My eyes feel really tight in that area. That lets us know that that's probably an area of her, what we call movement map that needs to you know, maybe get a little bit more repetition. So she doesn't move into so much of a stressed response when her eyes flash up. But after she does that drill, you know, she reminds her nervous system, Hey, looking up while it's felt feels a little tight, nothing bad is going to happen. So when we remind the nervous system that moving our eyes in different directions, there's no sign of threat, right? We're okay. We're safe. Tracy gets up, she reassesses her forward fold and she's like, whoa, my back doesn't hurt. My hamstrings are loose and I, my fingers are touching the ground now. So the nervous system responds that immediately. And, you know, I can definitely spend some time talking about like these movement maps and sensory maps to make sense of this. But what we're looking at is when pain decreases, when range of motion improves, it typically means that we're carrying less threat and that our brain can actually relax and feel safer in our environment. 
All right, Alyssa, you mentioned doing some drills and I'm wondering if you could take Chris and I as well as the audience through so that they could be doing this themselves as they listen. Okay, yeah, so your forward fold, right? We wanna do like the range of motion assessment as well as, you know, how does it feel for you? Sometimes it's like just tightness on the right side, tightness on both sides. So kind of just using your own language of how it feels. Okay, so I'm just, I'm just gonna bend at the waist and let my hands go to the ground. Great. So after you guys have this assessment, you guys can take a seat again, and then you want to assume kind of a nice, neutral, tall posture. The brain allows information travel faster up the spinal cord if we have a neutral spine and a really tall posture. So once you're seated, what I'd like for you to do is you're going to bring your finger out ahead of you, and you're going to focus on your nail. And then what you're going to do is you're going to create a circle the size of maybe like a basketball. And you're going to follow your finger with just your eyes. So your head and neck stay still, your body stays still, and you're tracing a circle the size of a basketball. And it's not going to be very fast because we don't want super fast circles just yet. We want to slow it down and go in like three directions in each or three circles in each direction. And what I would encourage Chris and Tracy to kind of reflect on is what areas of the circle feel maybe a little bit tight. Maybe your eyes start to get a little watery. Maybe you blink. These are all signs of stress. And remember, stress is the neurologic or threat. And threat is the neurologic word for stress. I've definitely got some looking up tension. Chris, how about you? Any tension on the eyes? I wanted to jokingly say they're squares, not circles. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the upper right part of the circle, it's, there's a little, there's a little uh, stick there. Cool. Okay. So after you guys do that, you guys will reassess your forward fold and just let me know if it feels the same or different. Much better. My lower back was super tight. And then when I just did my forward fold again, it was much looser. Mm. Chris, how about you? Yeah, better. Definitely a little bit more range. I'm actually really interested in how Chris receives all of this because he is such a fearless daredevil, like both in the kind of exercise and recreation that he does, as well as in his day-to-day work life. And so, yeah, I'm just thinking about like, he, he puts his body through the paces. Well, I think that, I think it's really interesting, Alyssa, because that I definitely know factually that that does catch up to you when you're about to turn 47. (laughs) Um, And that does bring up a a question I had for you. And I'm really enjoying the practical exercises. If we can do another one before the end, that would be really fun. But a question uh, just as an interlude here, age is something that I wanted to ask you about as well as gender, because, you know, if I take something like energy, I don't know if if you'd say, okay, you're, you're 47 years old. And of course you feel less energy. That's just the fact of aging. But is that the right amount of energy loss or, you know, what's that mean? And then gender feels interesting too. I think maybe overstated and perhaps far too simplified. I definitely would think that males are less in in tune. They're probably more likely to just do the blunt override. And I'm just curious how you think about age and gender in either what you recommend or, or just overall. Talking about the gender conversation first, So I think men culturally are not encouraged to pause and check in with how they're feeling, right? They're really in this masculine kind of toxic, you need to prove that you're a man. So you have to like throw up after your workout or lift this much weight or push through your injury, right? There's like all that messaging that really kind of conditions subconsciously or consciously that men should like really, really push their bodies harder, further, et cetera. And women, I think 
get a similar message, except it's driven from this change your aesthetics, be smaller, be thinner. And while both of us are fed the same message, physiologically, the body will respond differently. So men can sustain kind of this hard work ethic, this not checking in with themselves longer, because I think that's socially accepted as well as hormonally, the body doesn't break down as quickly. Whereas women, we're a little bit more sensitive. We have more hormones that we're navigating through, um, especially around menstrual cycles and things like that, that, you know, we could last on the same program with the same kind of intensity, but we may notice like, you know, pain surface sooner, metabolic conditions, like lowering body temperature, weight fluctuations, all of that come about like maybe after just like a month, whereas men might be able to sustain it for like six months. And the reason being is that females our hormones don't quote unquote reset until 28 days. Whereas men, you guys could go to bed and in 24 hours, you're kind of up and ready to go. So you're resetting a lot faster, which means that there's a lot more pliability, flexibility, resiliency already built into who you are genetically. Whereas women, it's like, we got to wait 28 days until we better understand how we're feeling, how like depleted we are, et cetera. So it's, it's, this fascinating physiological experience, as well as kind of what's enforced or encouraged culturally for us too. Yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned something I wrote down earlier from what you said is abandon who you are to keep the peace. It makes me think about, you know, abandoning who you are to keep the social norm. And just think back to, I remember my first job out of college and was just shocked that a modern uh, knowledge worker job meant going to an office, sitting there all day, typing into a computer, and just how off that felt relative to, say, the college lifestyle that was much more physically on the move, more on the go, more social, less structured to a certain amount of like goals for the company, et cetera. And that was a bicycle company, you know, so it was, it was um, very eye-opening and sort of fought back corporate culture ever since, but have accepted many of those norms. I just think the way back to the systemic way that we design things and maybe COVID's helping here. COVID has really uh, encouraged diversity and inclusion, environmental reporting. And, and it's really begged the question, taking it up all the way to what is the purpose of a company? If it's just to make widgets and shareholder value, then it's doing a pretty good job. If it's much more meaningful about social connection, purpose, et cetera, then incorporating your work into an, those environments feels spot on. And so far, you just see a very limited number of companies do that, like Headspace, maybe a little bit at Google, you know, a few that are dabbling in this, but I, I think you're really on something here. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I think the, the majority of my clients, I think there has been something that has gone like so far from, there's like that moment I think everyone has where they're like, what am I doing with my life? Right. And it could be a physical injury, right. It could be like a relationship thing. It's something that really like has them pause in this like routine or this fast pace, like autopilot. I'm just going to go to work, do my thing where then they're like, Whoa, I've just spent the last five years doing this and I'm either still unhappy or still feeling really unwell. And so I think it's in that moment that it's really brave for someone to be like, I want to change. And I think that you know, do you have the support, right? Do you have the community? Do you have the skill sets to embark on a change process? And I think 
change and being curious and all of that is, is really vulnerable and it's really scary. And so anyone that I get to work with, I know that at some point they've had that conversation with themselves. Um, and you know, it's such a privilege to be able to work with people that are taking a very risky and unknown kind of chartered path towards really just truly being more fulfilled in their own life, which goes against, right. A lot of what they've been told to do. Yeah. I think that right now is such a unique time because globally, we're having to pause or people, I mean, even if they, they still have so much that they have to do to keep their lives going, there's still this sort of sense of a collective reevaluation of values. You know, what do I want to have come out of this experience of the pandemic? What do I want to leave behind? Um, that's really what we want to focus on this season in particular is how to help people make that transition back from this period of, you know, living under a constant threat with the pandemic, having to shift all of the, you know, habits and routines that people are used to coming out of this. What do you actually want your life to look like? And we're seeing people make a lot of large decisions moving from places they've lived for long periods of time, you know, leaving jobs or, or shifting them in ways that hopefully better support them. So it, it does give us an opportunity to change. I'm actually curious how you have designed your life recently, because I know that you've had a big shift. And what has that done for you? What have you noticed about yourself and your own nervous system? It's pretty incredible. I mean, I think I've always wanted to move back to Hawaii. I was in California for 17 years. And when the pandemic hit, it was that great pause that I had to like really reassess my life. I kind of like imagined like I was like floating above my life and looking at what I was doing on a daily basis. And my work at that point had become all remote. So I was like, well, what's now holding me back from moving? And there really wasn't anything. And, you know, in California, we had those terrible fires. So it was something else that was like, okay, now's the time, even though we're in a pandemic, like, let's just do it. And so we moved to Hawaii and I was just, my girlfriend texted me and she's like, Hey, do you, are you doing dairy now? And I was like, you know what I am. And I feel great. And so I think something that's been so that I knew just from growing up here in Hawaii is that the lifestyle is way slower, way slower. <laughs> the driving miles, you know, the miles per hour of driving 25 miles per hour at most, maybe 45. We live so close to the ocean. And, you know, even if I don't go in the water, there's something about having your feet in sand and like smelling the ocean that like has a huge de-stressing experience on my entire system that for me, like my nutrition has become more expansive. Um, not saying I had a very like sensitive gut or anything like that, but I just knew that there were certain things that I had to eat periodically versus all the time. Whereas now because of my environment, because the pace of life, because of my community and my family here, the quality of my life has drastically improved from the standpoint of, I feel so much more connected, aligned and better in my physical and mental body, um, because of all those environmental pieces. And I think that I've had a lot of students as well, kind of make these shifts, these moves, these big decisions. And I think they were things that we all knew deep down. It's just the pandemic created that moment of pause for us to really stop and reassess. Am I spending the time that I want to with the people that I love? You know, is my routines designed the way that support my body or not? And I think the people that have made these big changes, you know, and for us moving to Hawaii was one of them. It's like, 
it, you know, you kind of think like, oh, should I have done this sooner? <laughs> but I think at the same time, it's like oh, everything's always done at like the perfect pace that really matches where you're at. And my dog, she loves it. So <laughs> she can't complain. <laughs> Does some of that, you know, the body adjusts, there's this sort of constant adjusting to our surroundings and what is novel then becomes normal. So as a resident or someone that grew up there, is that less effective once you're there and you have it every day? Or do you feel a constant nurturing of that environment and what it's giving you? So I think a large part of my lifestyle, my practice has been to really cultivate a sense of presence so that while I am able to go to the beach essentially almost every day if I wanted to, I think on average, I probably go about five times. I intentionally practice like being in gratitude and being really present. And I think being around a beautiful environment allows you to do that and forget about your to-do list, your tasks, your et cetera's. And so I think novelty is something that the brain craves, but I think it's something also that we can cultivate and practice. And so I think for me, it is a practice of being in gratitude and being very present with my surroundings so that it doesn't become mundane, right? Like, oh, I just live in Hawaii. Like, I think that, you know, (laughs) I think that, you know, talking to a lot of people and, you know, and me sharing parts of my life, there's always those reminders as well. Like, oh my God, thank you for sharing that video of Nala playing at the beach. Thank you for, you know, like, oh, I love this like sunset or whatever it is. And it, it is those reminders that you're like, wow, like, that is my life, you know, and I'm so grateful that this is more of a norm for me, but still hits that really soft space in being so appreciative that that is part of your life. So I think it's a practice of being present so that it doesn't become as, oh, that's just it. (laughs) For people who are listening right now, what are two things that they could do right in this moment to be more inquisitive about themselves? What questions should they ask? Okay. I always go with do I feel safe? And I think safety is personal. So spending some time exploring what safety feels like for you um, is going to be preceding that question. But I think exploring and defining what safety feels like for your nervous system and yourself, Um, because when you can create more safety in your environment for yourself in the way that you move your body, that's already going to move you towards, you know, a life as well as a body and a mind that feel less charged, feel less stressed, less reactive. So in place, it leaves more space for presence. So I think really cultivating a conversation around what safety means for you. Um, And then I think the conversation around threats, I think is really impactful. So every day we start with a a bucket, um, a threat bucket, and throughout the day, it begins to fill with certain threats and you know, throughout this podcast, I've shared a little bit about like how light can be threatening, how loud sounds can be threatening. It can be certain people that you find to like really charge your nervous system. And every day we're filling this bucket with threats. And if the bucket gets too full of threats, the output is going to be pain. And pain is also very uniquely personal. So some people might get, oh, my stomach feels really uncomfortable. Some people might get anxiety. Other people might get like my right ankle hurts, whatever it is, it's your unique pain pattern. So if you can also get into the practice of like, "Hmm, what am I carrying in my threat bucket that might be contributing to my emotional reactivity, to my anxiety, to my gut feeling off, it gives you more options to feel less stuck that like, you know, I, I, I don't want to go on that diet. Well, what if it's not your diet? What if it's the fact that your threat bucket is so full from the stress of navigating a global pandemic and, you know, the uncertainty in the world. Okay. Well, how can we create certainty, clarity routine right now so that you feel less like 
floaty or frazzled in your day-to-day. So maybe this person begins to like map out a schedule for themselves that already decreases their threat bucket. So I think exploring a threat bucket is going to be really, really helpful for people to just have that language and that understanding that typically your pain pattern is a symptom of multiple things you're carrying in this bucket. I wanted to say, as an example, I used to pack my schedule full of conversations with new people. Like I'm always interested in meeting new people. I want to help, you know, younger designers kind of come up into the space or, you know, just kind of putting myself out there. And I would notice that in the evenings when I would look at my calendar for the next day, I would start to feel uncomfortable about just how much I had to do and how much I had to be on. And even without, I think, consciously being aware of it, I've completely cleared my schedule of almost all of those conversations and my days have gotten much more peaceful. So I mean, that's just a really practical example of something that I I knew intuitively because I would look at it the night before that it was causing me discomfort, but working with you actually gave me, I gave myself permission to sort of let that go. And then one aspect I wanted to push on because uh, I'm speaking for myself is like, there's a lot of empathy for self and self-compassion. And um, as a recovering person who pushes herself beyond her boundaries, you know, there's still a part of my brain that says, "Ugh, you're just letting yourself off the hook, right? So how am I supposed to do all that I'm, I need to get done if I'm being so kind to myself? I really need to be driving if I want to succeed. And I just wondered, like, how do you how do you handle that? How do you take both sides like the angel and the devil on your shoulder and work through those kinds of conversations? Yeah. And I think one conversation I end up having very consistently is that two emotions, potentially conflicting emotions can exist at one time in your single vessel of your body, grief and joy, right? Productivity and rest days. And so I think when we normalize the fact that we can carry multitudes of emotions at the same time and still move through our day, I think that allows us to hold that space, that compassion, that empathy. And on top of that, I think that in many cases, we assume that if we have, you know, really high expectations of ourselves, right? I'm going to set these very lofty goals because I want to get there. And if I do that, I'm going to get there. But what actually ends up working more to our advantage is if we set more realistic expectations of ourselves, I wouldn't even call them expectations. I would call them just realistic intentions for ourselves that is more likely to support us in the stretch of achieving, in the stretch of being productive, et cetera. Because when we set more realistic expectations, we have way more space for mistakes. We have way more space for self-compassion to, you know, kind of thread itself through our journey of, you know, being productive, being successful, et cetera. Instead of kind of feeling like we're not getting there, we're never getting to our goal, right? I need to do more, et cetera. So when we can lower down those standards and really meet ourselves truly with our capacity, with what we have the time and energy for, I think many of us would actually be really surprised at how much we do achieve with more realistic expectations um, because it, it, it cuts down the narrative of like, I'm not doing enough. Um, when, you know, we establish a minimum of like today, I'm just going to get up and, and start my day with a cup of coffee. 
And, you know, the first hour of your day, you're like, oh, wow, I checked my emails. That wasn't on my intentions. And, you know, it kind of builds this inner confidence in us that like, wow, I'm capable, I have capacity and I can do this. I love this dialogue. Um, I, th I think just adding to it here, it's what makes it hard is when you've had some modest level of success, you believe that that's attributed to the fact that you pushed yourself really hard to do it and therefore it works and you need to keep doing that to repeat the effect. And so, yeah, I think it's it's uh, even harder, maybe back to the age thing, when you've had some success throughout your life, then you think that's what made it work. And turns out that that may not be true at all. So I appreciate what you're saying, Alyssa. One more on the practical side, on the threat bucket, during different times of day or even different times of the week, when that threat bucket is fully overloaded, we might be, someone might be listening right now who's just completely stressed out and they're not really in the place for, you know, redesign, but more about sort of emergency. And at those times, a walk in nature, even a walk in nature can feel like that just doesn't cut it. You know, it, it doesn't get, it doesn't cut through the, the threats uh, that, that you're describing. What do you recommend for people that are maybe in the moment in an extremely heightened threat state and how to navigate that back to a place of openness for shift? Yeah, I would say it's going to depend on their health history, but there are definitely two things that consistently probably work really well for, for this type of like, oh my God, my bucket is so heavy. And one of them is just the self-acknowledgement and the naming of how you're feeling. The fact that you can name, you know, like I'm feeling like I'm on the verge of a panic attack already acknowledges what your nervous system is like poking at you, right? It's like our threat bucket's full. I'm going to trigger a panic attack, right? And it's trying to get your attention. And so when we can self-acknowledge that our bucket is heavy, that we feel highly anxious, it already meets the nervous system and immediately downregulates the nervous system. So a lot of my students will get into the practice of just naming how they're feeling because they're in the practice of meeting their nervous system and then creating that like, ah, oh, okay, everything's okay. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us avoid that feeling, right? Leaning into the discomfort, leaning into like truly acknowledging like, holy smokes, like I'm like so stressed out. But what if you were to do that? Like if you were to just take a moment being like, I'm stressed, like that might be, you just might need to say that. And already your bucket is like notches lower. So I think naming your feeling and, you know, if you have the language to do that, I think that's, that's great. If anything, you could just say my threat bucket's really full. And that might already like, again, help you feel more in control and better. And the second thing I would recommend is your breath. So, you know, breathing and walking are the two most impactful ways to downregulate the nervous system. And so when you think about breathing, it could be one intentional breath. The emphasis would be focusing on your exhale because your exhale is what uh, increases the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest, digest, that calm part of the nervous system. So if you were to take one inhale, one complete empty, full exhale, you're already changing your chemistry. You're changing the way that oxygen and CO2 are being navigated through your body. You're changing the way your physiology is orienting to the safe, to the space around you, and then therefore creating more safety. What I liked about the breathing with a long exhale, the way that you had described it to me was when you exhale with more intention and longer, your body thinks, oh, well, obviously there's no tiger here because if there was, I wouldn't have time for this luxuriously long exhale. So I wondered if maybe you could take us again through an exercise where we just sort of leave this conversation with a very low threat bucket. 
Yeah, I would love to. So, you know, uh, Tracy and Chris, if you guys want to assess yourself again, right, you can do your forward fold, just check your neck range of motion, something that allows us to understand how's your body feeling right now? What's your threat level like? Okay, I'm checking my neck from just moving it from side to side, like I'm saying no. And it's pretty tight on both sides, but mostly on the right side. Here's something, a little tidbit. If the neck is immobile, it's going to impact your diaphragm, which is your breathing muscle. So the great thing about neuroscience is we can mobilize the diaphragm and then we might notice a change in, in how your neck feels. So they go two and two together. We can mobilize the neck, helps you breathe better. So what I'll have Chris and Tracy, you guys do is again, sitting up nice and tall in that same kind of posture that we had for the eye circles. I want you guys to place your hands kind of wrapped around your ribs. So it's almost like you're holding like a bottle or something in front of you, hugging your rib cage. So when you're in this posture, closing your eyes feels available to you. Sometimes removing in the vision interpreting uh, information is also really helpful. So you can close your eyes if that feels comfortable. You're going to take a breath in and then just take a breath out. Let's just reacquaint ourselves with where we're at, breathing in and out. And on this next breath, you're going to breathe in through the nose. And then we're going to actually try and create more of a throat exhale. Tracy's familiar with this. The throat exhale is just kind of like opening up your mouth and you're opening up your throat and you're creating this sound. And what you want to do with that throat exhale is again, sustain it as long as possible. What you should feel your rib cage do is kind of move down and in as you exhale. So you're going to breathe in, open up the throat, open up the mouth and exhale that air all the way out. And you want to exhale, try twice as long as you inhale. So it's a pretty long exhale. And see if you can just do one more. After that, you guys are going to just check in with your body. So do your reassessment, your neck rotation, your forward fold. The right side is much looser. I can turn my head further. The left mm-hmm. side is still a little stuck. Mm-hmm. And Chris, how did you feel? Yeah, definitely some improvement. Uh, you would all three of you would laugh at my range, but it's, um, given my range, it's better than normal. And so the interesting thing too, right, is oftentimes traditional fitness methods are like, well, stretch your hamstrings, stretch your hamstrings, foam roll your hamstrings, but we can just control the breath, create more efficiency with how you're breathing and it improves range of motion with a forward fold. So I think that's one way that people can start to conceptualize brain-based work is that there's multiple dials to address one specific thing. So if breathing for Tracy didn't allow her to, you know, reduce tension in her hamstrings. We can always just move her eyes. If her eyes didn't work, we can do something else. So your options are limitless, which allows you to feel less stuck or frustrated in your journey. Alyssa, for the, I can feel, yeah, I worked with 10,000 doctors, so I can feel the scientists on my shoulder rolling their eyes, right? Those that say, you know, that's placebo, there's some mind trickery going on there. Is there evidence on the range there? Has this been studied? Not that everything has to be, but can you talk a little bit about some um, Western criticism of the approach? And, you know, it's not me personally criticizing, I can just, I'm maybe speaking on behalf of people that might be listening or the scientific community that critiques. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that the the placebo effect is impactful is already neuroscience demonstrating its influence on how we feel, right? If I just am 
talking to myself saying that if I take this pill, I'm going to feel less pain, but it's a placebo effect, but I experience less pain. Was the pain really in my lower back or was the pain accumulation of me feeling that I didn't have control over my body? Yeah. So I think that there's so much power to our thoughts and our beliefs and like lack of control and the unpredictability nature of the world that sometimes what we're seeking is, you know, a path we're seeking an option. We're seeking, yeah, sure. Nervous system work, like deep exhales and moving your eyes. But regardless, I think it's like, how are we really, really supporting those specific needs and finding the tools that meet those needs? However, I always love the people that are cautious because I was that person. I was the questioner. I was like, there's no way moving my eyes is gonna make me feel better. And I would like move my eyes and I'm like, I don't think I feel better. But in my head, I was like, I think I feel a little better. <laughs> so I think it's just like, you know, really honoring that, you know, someone who's more questioning more question is is you know, unsure. It's like, it's just a, their own threat response, right? They're like, this is too good to be true. I don't trust this. Like I've done this for so long. They bought into static stretching, whatever it is that, you know, there's no way I, I could be like, yeah, you have to do the diaphragm instead of your static stretching. If they're so bought into static stretching, then it's like, okay, you can do that. Can we maybe insert some deep exhales while you're breathing? And then I get two of both worlds, right? So behavior change is very fascinating. You really need to kind of work with someone's like own thoughts and beliefs around certain things in order to get them to do really what's probably going to benefit them. Alyssa, your lived experience and the boundaries you're pushing in this space, I think are not only informative for us, but our audience. I hope that many, many, many people reference this episode and go through the exercises that you took us through. Deep gratitude for you and hope to see you in Hawaii someday. I would love Yay, that. Thank let's you. let's all go to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Melissa. Thank you so much. You are a magical creature and I'm so grateful to, to have your guidance in my life. Appreciate you. Oh my gosh, right back at you, Tracy. Thank you. Mm-hmm.